Right. Very good evening, uh, all. Uh, welcome here to the LSE. Uh, my name is Tony Travers. I'm director of the British Government at the school. And uh, it's a great evening for us this evening. We are uh, sharing what is a cross between a book launch and a debate. Uh, and the book launch uh, debate is about the recently published book At Power's Elbow, just to check I've got that right. Um, and we're going to hear from uh, both the book's, the book's authors, that's Andrew Glick and George Jones, that's in the reverse order. And then uh, their book, as they will tell you, is about the advisors, the people who have indeed worked with British Prime Ministers at their elbow, a role uh, which of course has gained enormous uh, prominence in recent years, but over prominence, whereas in the past, as the book itself says, they would have been rather less visible uh, than they have become. But we'll hear much more about that. I want to say very little from the chair. Um, and then we'll get a response from somebody who has himself fulfilled this role under two prime ministers, that's Lord Bernard Donoghue, who uh, worked in Downing Street uh, between 1974 and 1979 as, um, as a political advisor to Harold Wilson. You get it correct, you know, not political advisor. Go on. Senior policy Senior policy advisor. <laughs> <laughs> Senior policy advisor. Two and rightly so to <laughs> Harold Wilson until his departure and then Jim Callahan. One final thing, we will finish more or less on time at quarter to eight. And the reason I say that is I want you to stay in your seats till the very end in order that you can buy at £20 at a marvellously low price copies of this book if you should so desire. And if you should so desire or have them signed by the authors and the Max is waving one, he's got one, he bought it. Um, right, anyway, we're going to begin uh, with uh, George Jones, my colleague professor, who's emeritus professor here at the LSE, who is going to talk about how the book came to be. And he's going to say a bit more about what's in the book. Well, welcome. Thank you very much for coming and showing this interest in the book. I'm going to tell you how the book came about. Some of you who have already looked at the book may wonder when you've got to the appendix at the end and you see a list of people who've been interviewed. And you may have wondered how somebody as young as Andrew appears to be could possibly have done the, the in interviews because you look at the dates when the interviews <laughs> took place uh, I, I think 1975 <laughs> 1973 you know um, how did that happen well this book really began when I was working very closely with Bernard researching our biography of Herbert Morrison. This was in the early 70s when we were getting it all written. And whilst doing that I realised that ministers' private offices 
were exceedingly important, absolutely essential for the operation of our government. But there was nothing written about these private offices. So I thought, that's my next research project. Well, Morrison was published in 73, so it's, it's the early 70s that I got the idea. Now, where to begin? Well, Bernard and I, in writing our biography, had made a great deal of use of interviews with people who knew Herbert Morrison and had worked with him. So I knew the value of the interview. So I thought, well, what I've got to do is, as you always do, narrow the focus, and I'll focus on the private offices and trace the private secretaries of prime ministers as far back as I could possibly go. And I regarded, and still do, uh, these private secretaries, civil servants, all of them, as the core of the number 10 operations, the hub. This is the early 70s. I then, as usual, follow my pattern, go to the head, go to the top man for help. So I approached then principal private secretary to the Prime Minister, Robert Armstrong, now of course Lord Armstrong, and told him what I was intending to do. And uh, he rather liked it. And he and another private secretary on, under him, called Robin Butler at the time, now Lord Butler, gave me tremendous help. They provided lists of all the former private secretaries who were still alive, where they lived, uh, <laughs> and they actually wrote to them all, saying, George Jones will be approaching you, he's alright, you can talk to him, he's not after scandal and gossip, he won't be spreading stuff in, in the press. So I had this tremendous boost from the start. Uh, they did put a serious ban on me, there was something they didn't want me to do. They didn't want me to talk to the assistant private secretaries, the current ones anyhow. These are the ones who are uh, sometimes called queen bees, formidable ladies, who operated uh, the garden girl system, the, the typist and secretaries, who headed up certain sections like dealing with the honours uh, and other things that number 10 did. These were, they were really almost permanent people. They'd been there for years. If anybody knew how number 10 worked and the secrets of number 10, these were the people. Well, I had to respect what uh, Sir Robert and uh, Robin told me. I thought if I, uh, if I didn't, I wouldn't get the chance to interview all these others. Now, I did, of course, as I interviewed the other private secretaries, found out the addresses of the retired 
assistant private secretary. <laughs> and they were a tremendous source because some of them had been in the office since the days of Lloyd George, since 1919. And some of them were very, very close to Winston Churchill and his wartime, and they stayed on. And you can see uh, Miss Davis, Miss Stenhouse, you can see their dates in the appendix, their long, long experience. So I thought, well, I, I, I have to trade any uh, promise. Those people were absolutely vital. Um, I just didn't make any effort to contact the current Queen Bees, who Bernard must well know. I felt if, if it did get back to Armstrong and Butler that I'd been trying to question them, that would be the end of the project. And I really must thank Lord Armstrong and Lord Butler for their story. It, it wouldn't have worked but for them. And Robin even took me around. He gave me a tour, first time I'd been in number 10, and he took me around and showed me the rooms and who sat where and explained what went on and what was the significance of the kind of little lift at, at the back end of a private secretary's room which went down in, into the depths of, of number 10. Our appendix does this, the 57 that I interviewed and I'm sure there are more and the earliest one was there in 1914, serving Asquith. And when I talked to him, the way he described Asquith's number 10, he could have come back to the number 10 of the 70s, and it would have been really the same setup, the same rooms being used, the same sort of functions being performed. Those interviews conveyed to me a sense of the atmosphere of number 10. Now sometimes a particular Prime Minister could be quiet and ordered, Mr. Drackley's. But if it was Lloyd George's, there was a buzz about the place, a real dynamic force was going through number 10 and, and they were able to convey to me the differences as they saw it. There was another important source for me at the same time. My colleague, my co-author Bernard Donoghue was their senior policy advisor. The first, really, of the official SPADs. <laughs> Special policy advisors. Serving two prime ministers, Harold Wilson. I came into number 10 again. And saw Bernard in his splendid room uh, and we have regular occasional chats. If, if you have Bernard's diaries you'll see sometimes an entry saw George Jones. <laughs> um, thanks to Bernard for keeping me in touch with what was going on in the 70s. Well, I used the interviews and other material I'd collected. I, I don't forget I'd been interested in Prime Minister since I, I wrote an article in 1965 
all the power of the Prime Minister and uh, it, it, it was very well received and it had that sentence at the end that expresses the Jones theory that I've not wavered from <laughs> the Prime Minister is only as strong as his colleagues let him be and that was what I wrote and that article has been frequently reprinted so I'd already started on the Prime Minister back in the 60s then using the material I collected I wrote about the private secretaries it was the opening chapter in a book of essays in honour of an LSE professor called William A. Robson, Willie Robson. And I, I, I focused on the years 1868 to 1976, describing the private secretaries, who they were and what they did. Uh, and I wrote other articles and chapters on, about prime ministers around there. And then I got immersed in local government finance. Now you can, you know, I, I couldn't, I had to drop the Prime Ministers to get absorbed in that fascinating and important subject that has still occupied me. Skip forward to the 1990s. Professor Peter Hennessy asked me to see a doctoral student at his, at Queen Mary, who was researching on special advisors and it later became his book People Who Live in the Dark and of course that was Andrew who is our leading spadologist because the study <laughs> we are spadologists people who study these people who live in the dark he came and interviewed me I made material available to him we got on very well we talked from time to time and we came up with the idea of writing a book together about the age of Prime Ministers, not, not just the Private Secretaries, because we realised there were others as well. From the very start of the Premiership in the early 18th century, we thought we'd be conformist with the general view that Walpole was the first, although he would have denied it, as would most of the Prime Ministers of the 18th century. They didn't want to be dubbed with this alien French foreign title of First Minister. We uh, planned our book, tried to get publishers interested, and they weren't. No publisher was interested in our book. But what they were interested in was a book on the Prime Ministers themselves. So Andrew and I wrote, 2010, the book which emerged as Premiership, which is the study of British Prime Ministers from the uh, first one, Walpole, to the Prime Minister at the time. And having got that out, we thought we'd have another go with the publishers, and we worked up a book plan on the AIDS. And bite back publishers took us and they have produced we think most efficiently the volume that's uh, here today and I must thank my back publishers for publishing our book 
publishers have strengths and, and weaknesses uh, they are very good getting a, a book published and out and I think I'll stop <laughs> and say no more but leave it now to Andrew to tell you what's in the book what the main lessons are thank you Thank you, George. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. I'm going to talk a bit about what's in the book, but not too much, because I hope you're going to get it, so I don't want to give too much away. I'm going to talk about the, the continuity and then the change that we identify in this book. To start with the continuity, one important feature that runs throughout the period we've looked at from the early, early 18th century through to the present is the physical location. 1735, Walpole gets offered this building, number 10, Downing Street, by George II. In fact, George Downing was a bit of a cowboy, and the buildings he put up on the street probably should have been knocked down a long, long while ago, but uh, can't be for obvious historic reasons. We're, we're stuck with them. But these buildings, even then, were obviously going to take quite a lot of money to actually keep up and renovate. And... Uh, Walpole being quite good with money if you, if you go, ever go and see his, uh, his house, Houghton Hall you'll see uh, he had quite a lot of money that he must have got from somewhere it's not quite clear where uh, decided that, that uh, he wasn't going to be able to afford to keep up this building himself so, but he didn't want to offend George II either whose who's chief minister he was at the time so said well look, I can't possibly have it on my own account but why don't you give it to all first laws of the treasury in perpetuity and it will be a wonderful gift to the nation. And, and, uh, and obviously that also meant that the upkeep of the building uh, fell to the public purse rather than, than uh, Walpole's personal uh, expenses. But he got to live in the building while he was, first of all, the Treasury. First of all, the Treasury, as I'm sure you all know, is the actual job title which has longest been associated with the job of Prime Minister, long before they became known officially as Prime Ministers, which doesn't really happen until the 20th century. They were called normally called First Lord of the Treasury. So that's the building. Another important thing about this building, its continuity, where many Prime Ministers have lived and their aides have worked, not all, but many in the intervening period. Another, another important feature of the building and its continuity is the building round the back. We often read about people being smuggled in to the... Uh, to number 10 through the back entrance. There's a connecting door with this mysterious building at the back, which was built around the same time that Walpole took on and renovated <coughs> number 10. And it was built in an area that was then called the cockpit, which was even at that time the centre of, uh, of government activity. And uh, this building, the same man who did the renovation on number 10, Downing Street, also built the old treasury building. His name was William Kent, famous architect who got a lot of his commissions from Walpole, in fact. And he, he built this building. It was then the, the headquarters for the treasury. Nowadays, it's part of a bigger building called 70 Whitehall, and it's the headquarters for the cabinet office. Recently in the news, a crane fell over on the building. You may have read about that. That's the building. That's the Kent building. Wonderful building. Again, it's kind of falling apart. It's about five different buildings in one. It's not exactly an ideal working space, but it is, it's an amazing piece of history. 
So th- that's the physical location, and over the years, a lot of the, a lot of the prime ministers and the aides we're talking about in the book li- are working and sometimes living in this estate, this connected estate. And you've got to look at it as an overall estate. It's not just about number ten. It's number ten in the building behind to really get a grip of what's going on there in the centre of government. We think. And as this architectural innovation suggests, Walpole's claim to be the first Prime Minister, although as George said he always would have denied it, is quite strong. That's one feature of how we can say Walpole actually creates the office of Prime Minister, is he creates the physical location. He also, in his use of aids, does a lot to create the job of Prime Minister. And here's another area of continuity. The the people Walpole has working for him do many of the things, the kind of general tasks that we would associate with Prime Ministers ever since and still in the present day. There's no official role as Prime Minister, as I've said, so there's no official Prime Ministerial staff. Nevertheless, he is Prime Minister and he does have a Prime Ministerial staff in reality. He has people doing various things that, as I say, would, would be familiar today. He has policy advisers, he has people helping him make sure that he gets votes through Parliament, including through the House of Lords. He has Edmund Gibson, the Bishop of London, who got himself the name Walpole's Pope for being able to whip all the votes through the Lords and get get the 26 Anglican bishops on board for all the Whig legislation. So that's the kind of thing he has going on in Parliament. He has people who are there to help him make sure he wins elections, and this is actually done often by by paying people to vote the right way or using the Secret Service money which was officially for intelligence activities but was actually used for various nefarious uh, forms of political bribery. He also has people helping him with the media, people writing articles about how wonderful Walpole is for him, people paying other writers to write articles, people harassing legally people who criticise Walpole and buying up various newspaper titles. So all these things are going on in the 18th century and in, in adjusted forms have really gone on ever since. One thing that's not absolutely clear about Walpole is whether he had a private secretary. Probably he may have done, but we haven't been able to clearly identify a person who did it. So the first person to hold the role, really, of private secretary to a prime minister is John Roberts, who's actually on the, on the back of our book, a, a portrait of him. There's, there's someone else you may recognise on the cover, but John Roberts is on the back, and he worked for Henry Pelham and, and later the Duke of Newcastle, who are both, in fact, Walpole protégés, and he can be seen as a forerunner to the, the, all the private secretaries that have come later, and people such as Edmund Burke have done that job for Lord Rokingham, John Colville did it for Winston Churchill, and many others whose names you've already heard tonight did that job, so it's a very important job. So, that's Walpole. Everything he, everything he got involved intended to generate controversy, which is another another feature of continuity. What he and his aides got up to was always being criticised and after he fell from power in 1742 there was an attempt to construct a case to prosecute him for corruption and a parliamentary committee of secrecy was set up. They took evidence from lots of his aides or tried to take evidence but they'd all refused to speak. One of them was actually locked up and they were never able to actually get a case against his aides or him together sufficiently to, to prosecute him or impeach him, as, 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 as it would have been called at the time. Since then, there have been attempts to mount criminal cases against prime ministers or their staff. Maundy Gregory was a middleman between prime ministers and people who were hoping to buy honours in the interwar period in the 20th century, and he's the only person ever to have been successfully 
prosecuted for the sale of honours. I think he actually had a price list, so they had quite incriminating uh, <laughs> evidence against him. But it's very actually quite difficult to get people on that charge. There was an attempt to investigate the the staff of Tony Blair in the in the in the in the last decade, but that didn't run to anything. And as far as we can tell, no former or serving prime ministerial aide has ever been successfully prosecuted for a criminal offence yet. <laughs> but it's not all been about continuity, there's also been change. Some of the key, key areas of change we've got, we identify in a book are first, the loss of the treasury. Up until the mid-19th century, Prime Ministers, well the, the job title First Lord of the Treasury actually did, did what it said in, on the tin back then. You actually were First Lord of the Treasury. They ran the Treasury, they were in day-to-day -day control of the business of the Treasury. If they sat in the Commons, which many but not all of them did, they also simultaneously held the post of Chancellor of the Exchequer. So the kind of uh, Blair-Brown type disputes or, or Thatcher-Lawson type disputes that, that we've had in, in more recent years weren't possible because it was the same person doing both jobs. So this is a big difference. Actually, Duke of Wellington, when he was Prime Minister, uh, made a comment that it would be highly inconvenient to uh, separate the uh, person in charge of the forces from the supply. He saw this as being a, a, a strange thing to want to do. But in the end, for various reasons, the job got too much. Robert Peel actually starts the process in the mid-19th century whereby the job of Chancellor Exchequer becomes separated from the job of Prime Minister and they lose control of the Treasury which up to that point was an important source of all their aides and their staff. So this is a shift and in a way this is a loss, this is a, a, a kind of scaling down of, of how important the Premiership is and how big its staff is and how many people they've got working for them. Then later, later on in the 20th century there are attempts to build up the staff a bit more and we see people like David Lloyd George enhancing their staff, Winston Churchill and then how Wilson boosts up his staff including with uh, someone who we're very lucky to have here tonight speaking after me so this is, this is a, the kind of shift we see some people have since recommended that we actually should set up an official department of the Prime Minister the kind of people who have suge suggested this include people around Lloyd George thought this might be a good idea People around Harold Wilson at times thought it might be a good idea in the 60s particularly. People around Ted Heath were talking about let's set up a department of the Prime Minister. Margaret Thatcher, people around her thought it was a good idea. People around Tony Blair and really under Tony Blair we probably got closer to an actual specific department of the Prime Minister than any other point. Someone else who thought it was a good idea in 1930 incidentally was uh, Oswald Mosley. I don't mean read into that what you want. Uh, so the, another important uh, change that's taken place is the rise and then the possible decline of the permanent civil service. Again, to go back to Walpole, there's not really any such thing as the permanent civil service. They're all political appointments. The idea of having a special advisor wasn't necessary. They're all working very much in a party political environment. Many of them were aides and also had seats in Parliament at the same time. That wasn't seen as a problem. Over time, this changes. and. By the 1920s, there's a thing called the civil service as a permanent staff that serves whoever happens to be in, in charge at the time, and they hold their posts regardless of election results or changes in the Prime Minister. And they, they, eventually, by the 1920s, they managed to get hold of the Prime Ministerial staff. The actual origins of, of someone who's actually 
a permanent, a principal private secretary and is a permanent civil service. The origins of the idea that the chief official at number 10 should be a permanent civil servant is actually someone called Ronald Waterhouse. And he's quite an interesting character because his main qualifications for the job seem to be not that he was actually any good at it, but that he had intelligence connections, he had connections with the royal family, and he knew the precise circumstances, which are slightly mysterious, of how Stanley Baldwin came to succeed Bona Law as Prime Minister. So how exactly he got the job isn't entirely clear, but he does start an important tradition of the chief official at number 10 being a permanent civil ser servant. Probably the most powerful of all the aides we're talking about was a permanent civil servant, and that's Norman Brooke, who at one point in the 1950s held the jobs of Cabinet Secretary, Permanent Secretary to the Treasury, and Head of the Home Civil Service, all at the same time. He was an incredibly powerful individual, actually probably worked himself to an early grave by doing that. But he's probably the most important uh, figure in, in our whole book. That's an assessment we make. However, although permanent civil servants can be extremely useful, they provide continuity and stability, there have been some disasters. Some of the most prominent ones are uh, Horace Wilson, who, who gets too close to Chamberlain, is a policy of appeasement in the 1930s, and his reputation has suffered greatly because of that. And then later on, there were some problems with uh, William Armstrong, who again got a bit too close to Edward Heath, was seen as being linked too closely to his economic U-turn in the early 1970s, and in fact, had a breakdown while he was in post, which is something which is, is famously known about. So these are the kind of problems that can happen with, with, uh, with permanent civil servants, which is why, particularly from the 1960s, although there are always some external appointments, particularly from the 1960s under Harold Wilson, they start to come back in again. Prime Ministers start to bring in their own people again, and we get special advisers working at number 10, and we also get the, uh, the uh, political secretary working at number 10. So these are political outside appointments start to make a comeback. And this is a bit of a challenge, really, to the establishment, to the, uh, the established permanent civil service that are in there in number 10. So that's a, that's a change that's happened over time. There's been a rise and then possibly a slight or a relative decline in the strength of the civil service. So to finish up, what are our overall conclusions? We feel that prime ministers have always needed support and always will do. They need aids, there's no question about that. And they need enough aids, and they need aids of the right kind. If they underestimate their requirements, including for party political support, so they do need people who can help them with party political stuff, they need special advisors and that kind of thing, they can, they can find themselves in difficulties, not, not on top of events, not clear about the policy announcements that's coming up, losing track of what's going on. And this is probably a problem which David Cameron experienced early on in his premiership. He didn't actually bring in a high-powered enough, large enough political team, which he's since tried to re rectify, but has had, had trouble actually doing that, because once you're in and you haven't done it, then to turn the ship around is quite difficult. But at the other end of the scale, too many staff can get in the way and create problems. And I think this was a difficulty under Blair. In the end, he had over 780 staff actually working for the Prime Minister in the Cabinet Office and in Number 10, full-time staff. And how on earth could he have known what all of them were doing? 
this, this is a real problem because one of the most important qualities of a Prime Ministerial aide is actually knowing the mind of the Prime Minister, knowing what the Prime Minister would think about something without actually having to ask the Prime Minister. You can't possibly do that with 780 people. It's difficult, I would say, to do that with more than 10 people. So in terms of senior aides, you have to, I think, think about keeping the number low, but not, not too low. It's a, it's a difficult balance to strike. But for that reason, we, we think that that a, a fully-blown department of the Prime Minister probably isn't a good idea. Other, other problems are that it will create resentment amongst the Whitehall departments because they'll see it as a threat to their position. And it can't, you can't possibly have many staff you've got actually fully supplant the work of all the departments in Whitehall because they're doing things which just can't be done out of the centre, particularly under the constitutional system we've got. So we, we, have, we don't advocate a fully bone department of the Prime Minister, which some people, some of whom I've listed earlier, have in the past, and some people still talk about it now. And we also note that those who have advocated enhancements to the Prime Minister's support staff tend at the same time to say, oh, but we want to keep it flexible and we don't want to expand too much, in which case, why bother doing it? You know, I don't, we don't quite understand all of that. So finally, if we are moving into an era of coalition being more common, which people are talking about that now, may of course turn out not to be the case, but if coalitions do become more frequent, it's probably a good idea that number 10 is once again clearly established as being a prime ministerial resource. The present arrangement seems to be that it's a shared resource between the deputy prime minister and the prime minister, which I don't think really works. I think number 10 has got to be clearly working for the Prime Minister. I don't think that necessarily means you can't have a functioning coalition at all, far from it, but I think number 10 has got to be working for the Prime Minister. And certainly neither Lloyd George nor Churchill, both who effectively ran coalition governments in much more difficult circumstances, I might add, than, than present circumstances, would not have accepted the idea of a, of a pooled arrangement and uh, neither should a, a pre Prime Minister in a coalition today. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. And um, now last but not least, Lord Bernard Donoghue. Well, thank you very much. Um, privileged to be here. I first came here and lectured 49 years ago uh, when I may say this building didn't exist. <laughs> Hence the night I went first to the original St Clement's building and got lost. Anyway, first uh, I, I want to say what a fine book this is by George, who's been a friend and colleague for 50 years and by Andrew and first that I think it shows reverse, reverting to a slightly academic dimension it shows the merits of the institutional and the historical approach to government and politics that's of relevance at the LSE because shortly after I left the school for reasons best known to itself to a great extent gave up the study of British politics or institutions or the historical approach and I know George felt strongly about that and fortunately he and Tony recently have raised the banner and fought for that approach 
against the other more esoteric approaches that took over in my old department which produced books that in just my personal view were unreadable then and are are rightly unread now (laughs) talking about the historic uh, uh, to, to me I was struck by the two dimensions contributing to the book one was looking backwards which they've each and especially Andrew talked about describing very valuably and to a great extent I think newly the long pedigree of the special advisor as they described Walpole, Peel, etc. Now I have to admit looking back when I was teaching politics and government here 60s to 70s I don't think I and I did the introduction to British politics I don't think I ever mentioned special advisers I was faintly aware but was not in any academic sense aware or felt able to talk about them and I also admit that my first published book on 18th century British politics doesn't mention advisers at all Uh, so to me this illustrates the contribution that they and George especially have made in bringing this important area of study this important area of political power uh, to our uh, attention I mean when I went into number 10 in 1974 to work for Harold Wilson uh, as a policy advisor uh, um, to set up the number 10 policy unit which didn't exist uh, before I mean, to a great extent we assumed it was a new invention and of course the policy unit itself was a sort of systematic uh, basis of policy advice but as they've described the special advisors were far from a new invention I'd like to point out on, in terms of quality I'll just tell you some of the people who were in my policy unit at the beginning they were very, very young but I had only six weeks to choose them and I knew that the fate of the policy unit would depend on the calibre of the people and we had on the economic side Andrew Graham a fine economist subsequently master of Balliol Oxford and Gavin Davis who became head of economics at Goldman Sachs and still a distinguished economist writing in the Financial Times and so forth subsequently chairman of the BBC uh, Lord David Lipsy uh, and um, a subsequent Master of Worcester College Oxford a subsequent Professor of Economics at York University now they were happened to be on the whole in their 20s and 30s but I felt proud of that unit and they were bringing I thought something different to uh, Whitehall and especially to the Prime to the Prime Minister's power really because what Andrew mentioned because of our strong emphasis on economics which has always been one of my main interests 
they were clawing back some of the influence over economic policy from the Treasury. And that's what Howard Wilson wanted. He said to me, one of the main reasons I want you to set it up, he said, is because I want the choice of an alternative economic policy, and that's your job. He said, I won't always take it, but I want the option there. So we felt it was fairly new. Um, and on that basis, Howard Wilson drew up, I think for the first time, the rules governing special advisers. For instance, that there should be only two for each minister. The figure was chosen, it's a perfectly sensible figure, but the figure was chosen for practical political reasons that he knew Tony Benn uh, was seeking to increase the number of special advisers uh, in Whitehall and that was the last thing the Prime Minister wanted. He felt uh, that two lun as he said two lunatics is enough for the time being. Uh, and so two was decided in order to prevent Tony getting any more. I negotiated what you might call the operation, operating rules. We called it the Concordat between myself and uh, John Hunt, who was a quite papal figure, so we thought of it as a Concordat, where we devised the rules concerning the key things of how the special advisers would work what access they had to papers, what they could see and not see, what access they had to committees. And now if they wanted to go to an exceptional committee, the process was they would come to me, I would go to the cabinet secretary and so forth. So we began to have rules and structures for uh, special advisors. I also, crucially, negotiated that the special advisers would get three months redundancy pay. Back in uh, March 1974, we knew there would be an election soon. If we lost the election, we would be out. So, as a good trade unionist, I thought uh, a bit of redundancy pay was not a bad idea. Uh, so, we did all those things as if this was completely new. And what I loved about the book was it shows how the breed in fact stretches a long way back but not regulated and systematized in the way we began to do it. It also of course historically brings us forward to the present day and there we see dramatic changes that have taken place especially as you mentioned the huge increase in numbers when I was there for that Labour government, I think there was about a maximum of 70 throughout the whole of Whitehall, often less. Now, today you have huge numbers, but how that converts into influence or power is a complex issue. As you hinted, Andrew, in a way, the more special advisers the more confused it becomes and the less power each individual special advisor tends to have and I mean certainly in number 10 then there were on average about seven of us 
and for the Prime Minister the number of people with access to him which is a major form of influence face to face uh, among us I was the only one he said he only wanted the head of the policy unit the press secretary Joe Haynes had access and the four of the private office had access others could if they asked but they usually didn't that's the, that's the number of people who had access to Harold Wilson uh, he was a relaxed man and if someone else wanted to see him he was always happy Jim Callaghan was much more formal and the number was probably less under Callaghan one consequence was that each advisor who did have access had a lot of power and influence potentially whereas if you've got however many 50, 100, 200 around number 10 uh, on the whole each one has uh, much less power because each power has been diluted this first struck me when I was uh, in the Blair government uh, we brought in a new gambling bill which interested me because I'm interested in gambling and love horse racing and so forth and uh, I went to a meeting called given, well it was a dinner given by Ladbrokes in a big hotel and there opposite was a man who introduced himself as a senior policy advisor in number 10 so I mean he didn't know who I was but that didn't matter a hoot but I thought I'm going to be interested in him because <laughs> he has influence and then two things emerged one he stated that they needn't discuss this issue of the new gambling bill because he and his advisors decided what shape it was going to take and that was going to be the law so I was impressed I thought he's a really powerful man now subsequently the bill was totally changed and was unrecognisable as he, is, as he and his influential colleagues had decided but secondly when I spoke to him I said how regularly do you meet the Prime Minister and he looked a bit shifty and then he said well I haven't exactly ever met him <laughs> And then I realised that the individual power of senior policy advisers had slightly declined. Uh, and of course today there are more in number 10 Downing Street alone than in the whole of Whitehall. Then uh, they are of, often of a mixed calibre. I'm not sure that they are gathered together, many of those that I was lucky to work with uh, they seem to be often uncontrollable even unaccountable uh, if you think just of the appalling Mr McBride and Jerry, Jeremy Hunt special advisor Liam Fox's special advisor in our day I think this is true and one of my colleagues uh, Professor David Henderson, who was also a special advisor, I think we'll know this is true. He was also my economics tutor, I may say. Uh, and that, I think, people of that ilk 
would not have been around, I'm not sure some of them would have been allowed in number 10 even on a visit. It's to me unthinkable that Howard Wilson, Jim Callahan, or Margaret Thatcher would have actually employed Andy Corson given the track record and the form. So there's a lot of changes. Also the spotlight. We read about these people. We know who many special advisors are. I was there for over five years in number 10 and I used to keep them. I think there was no more than a dozen references to me in the press in that whole five years because Wilson said to me you're not to be the message. And that seemed to me very sensible. We were there to advise him not to get publicity for ourselves. I was mentioned a little more often in private eye, such as nearly every fortnight until I sued them. Uh, but uh, that was because they were obsessed with my alleged sexual relationship with Lady Marcia Faulkner. <laughs> which fascinated us all in number 10 since we hated one another and didn't exchange a word for most of the time I was there a final that's a good marriage hmm? that's no part of a good marriage <laughs> well, you, you would speak from greater experience um, the other painful change is actually in the remuneration when I ran the policy unit I was paid £8,000 a year. It wasn't even allowing for inflation. The Labour was pretty good at inflation, but it wasn't as good as that. <laughs> um, and today I read of them earning 120000 150000 They're not even a senior advisor. So uh, the changes are quite dramatic. I don't know in the organisation of special advisors if there's now technically a head of special advisors. don't think so, no. I was told I was head of special advisors, but uh, I must confess I never, although I chaired meetings of all the special advisors, and that's how few we are, were that you could have a meeting, but I didn't ever accept the job. Uh, mainly because, as Harold advised me, you don't want to be responsible for bending special advisors, which was one of his uh, obsessions. Uh, so those are areas that strike me as having changed. Some things remain unchanged. I think the distinction between policy advisors and political advisors is one that everybody who writes in this area should almost boringly repeat because they are very different kind of animals we were policy advisors the political advisors are quite different and for instance in my policy unit over five years not a single one ever went for or wanted to be a member of the House of Commons so that what their interest was in their policy specialities their academic specialities whereas you'll find, I think, many of today's special advisors, political advisors, see it as just a step on the, on the ladder. Though two of my unit are now, many years later, in the House of Laws. Um, if I just comment on the Department of Prime Minister, that crops up, as you say, 
time and again it did in my time it was put to James Callahan, and we had several conversations about it and neither of us wanted it and the main reason well two main reasons linked one that it would be hierarchical that's what happens if you get a department is hierarchical whereas in the number 10 we worked in I think it's different now it was a small team who in a way were nearly all equal and the Prime Minister treated them as equal the moment it's a hierarchy it's not like that and also he felt it would become bureaucratic and he felt the one great advantage of number 10 over other departments was that it wasn't bureaucratic he didn't get involved in all of the stuff that a, uh, a bureaucratic uh, department has. Uh, the biggest issue which remains seems to me that the need to preserve a balance, a proper balance of influence between the political special advisors appointed by political patronage and therefore to some extent other than to their master unaccountable and the career civil servants operating in, under much stricter rules. Each clearly has an important role where each really sometimes can determine the fate of their political masters, their minister. Once in my time I felt, though looking back I'm not so sure, that the special advisers had too little power. Now perhaps they have too much and the declining caliber of the civil service which is the thing that struck me most between when I was in as a special advisor in the 70s and when I was a minister in the 90s the declining caliber of the civil, career civil servants uh, is a major factor in that. I felt the civil service when I was there was an absolute Rolls-Royce machine. I wrote a lot and after lectured a lot criticising it. I have to say I did so on the assumption that it would always be there, this Rolls-Royce machine. And what I was doing, others were doing, was just pecking at it a little, trying to nudge it a little this way uh, and that. It's now gone, it's not a Rolls-Royce machine and I regret uh, that deeply because it was one of this country's greatest assets. Anyway, that's enough for me. I'd just like to say I think this is a very fine book and I think everybody should buy it. <laughs> and anyone who doesn't should be locked in all night. <laughs>
that the, there's been a big move from the idea of the advisor or the, the, the special advisor or person working with the minister or prime minister being um, a policy advisor, somebody with influence. I think most people these days would see these characters as being, partly because of popular culture, partly because of real life events, as people involved in political spin, <coughs> that they are, they take change totally from this sort of cautious advisory role to people who just push a line, push a message for the government. And <coughs> now, is that because prime ministers have responded to a change in the outside world, or that prime ministers have come up with a new way of doing it, which in turn has changed the world? So, in a sense, do people like uh, Andrew Coulson and Alistair Campbell, are they appointed because the world has changed? Or when they're appointed, does it then change the weather outside? Or is it both? Well, the word special advisor really encompasses two sorts of people. On the one hand, there are the policy advisors, real experts in policy. In our day, there was Brian Abel Smith, professor of social policy here, who was really the country's leading expert on health and hospitals. And he was required as a special advisor, if you like, to add to the civil service contribution an expertise that they hadn't got. These were people of real substance. And, and some of them today still are. The other sort are the more political advisors who are sympathetic to the Prime Minister, who are seeking to encourage the Prime Minister's uh, achievement of the political goals. And as um, Andrew mentioned, that was what they were doing back in Walpole's day. He had the spinners. He wanted people who could connect him and deal with those who were sending up all these awful cartoons and uh, scurrilous articles. He wanted a, a rebuttal unit. And he had these people to do that. So there's nothing new there. And in our book we, we do develop this theory that the aids of Prime Ministers bring certain resources to the Prime Minister. Can't do everything himself, needs their resources to do the job. And then they have to connect to the people and power centres in society who have their own resources. And what's going on is uh, both sides deploying their resources. So if a certain interest becomes powerful in society, the press, the media, you need resources to deal with that. If uh, industry and commerce become important, you need aides who can relate to those and deal with those and attract those. So, yes, times change. New forces in society come along and the Prime Ministers have to respond and they select the people who will help them, help them deploy their resources to deal with the resources 
that are being, if you like, deployed against them. Just to stress, I think in answer to your question, are they changing the world? Is the world changing? They are reactive. Prime ministers never have absolute power. No prime minister's got that. And if any prime minister thinks they can actually control the media agenda was in for a nasty surprise at some point, probably sooner more than later. But they do over the years develop various techniques. I suppose the change has been, it's probably, as, as Bernard was saying, it's become a bit more systematised over the years. So you have things like the Strategic Communications Unit, and that's partly to do with technology. They've got computers they can now uh, plan the media agenda on. They didn't have that 30 years ago. So it's partly, and they have to deal with things like they had to set up a web, a web team in about 1999. Obviously, that's reactive to technological change, but it's all very much reactive. They can't control what's going on in terms of the outside world. They, they can, at best, channel it and, to some extent, deal with it. But in the end, most of them are brought down. Very few prime ministers leave office voluntarily. So something obviously happens to them that they can't control. Okay. Right. Uh, I must have a point about speaking. Uh, it's become much more important, particularly with Mr. Blair, and his attitude can be illustrated by a certain change he did in the physical arrangements. For years, the splendid building and rooms in number 12 Downing Street, remember 10 p.m., 11 Chancellor, 12, the Chief Whip, those were the three treasury blocks, the First Lord, the Second Lord and Chancellor, and the Patronage Secretary, the, the Chief Whip, helping to manage the House of Commons. What Mr Blair did was to move the Chief Whip out of number 12. They were cast out of those splendid buildings and pushed further down Downing Street to essentially an entrance at number 9 very close to when you go in through the fortifications. And who did he put in the splendiferous rooms building number 12? Alistair Campbell, the spinners, the presentation, which is where they are now. So it symbolises that for Mr Blair, the media were more important than Parliament and parliamentarians. And uh, that's why Andrew began we're talking about the physical location because where people sit and work is an important indicator of their power. And is the fact that David Cameron hasn't moved them an indicator that he's like Mr Blair? Yes. He put Mr Coulson yeah, so in that building. It shows that there was no question of restoring the way to achieve work back to the old premises. So he's carried on the Blair tradition. Well, he said from time to time he does feel he's the heir to Blair. <laughs> yeah, and I mean Brown reinforced that. Uh, it is both. Uh, I agree with the Prime Minister's reaction. And what he was reacting to, what Blair was reacting to, and Thatcher began to was the sort of dominant media, 24-hour media. I mean, when I was there, you didn't have 24-hour media. You had a few key points. You, know, you, you 
you had to get the first editions of the model arch at midnight. Yeah, or the telephone TV programmes. But that was it. The arrival of a dominant media was what they reacted to. And as far as Blair's concerned with that Labour Party, it was the sustained attempt by the media, for instance, to destroy Neil Kinnock. And they did, which impressed Blair and Alistair, who was of the day of at that time. And they concluded that they could be destroyed too. And the only way you did this, through spin and what have you, was to try to control this media, even if it meant flying around the world <coughs> and, and dining with the devil That's and So there is basically a, a reaction to a dominant media, but at the same time a different kind of person is coming into politics and becoming and James Callan and Margaret Thatcher were people who had done jobs before, who were very interested in the policy of the country and so forth. And the media side came second. With Blair, that was altering. Uh, and Cameron, from what I understand, and I've talked to a lot of people who know and white people, is the new person that hasn't really ever done any job before other than a bit of advertising. And so for him, the sort of image or projection is more important than the substance. On the whole, I thought, so they're not interested in the details of policy. Why should they be interested in the details of policy? What matters is how you sell it, as he said. And so he's, one of his key meetings is every morning with uh, the appalling deputy prime minister and two of us. They discuss, or at four in the afternoon, how you influence tomorrow's daily now, that's basically. Well, that would have been unthinkable for Wilson. I wouldn't dare propose that to They would have thought that was not what prime ministers did, but it's what prime ministers now do. Okay. Now, um, question there, and one there. So we'll take two or three. And then let's see one yeah. So take three, say roughly if you want to, who you are, if you'd like to. Yeah. Uh you know, I was a student uh until like a couple of years ago, I work in the House of Lords now. Um, speak up as much as you can. Uh, I work in the House of Lords now. Um, one thing I was always very struck by, certainly when you came in, is is the tendency to have special advisors rather um, a bit of a symptom about the fact that the head of government's office has traditionally been very small in comparison to what you traditionally see even in other European countries. You know, the Chancellery has always been dominant in Prussia, in Germany as a whole. Uh, in Japan, you've always had the Chief Cabinet Secretary, which has been these, this huge office for policymakers and coordinating the various different government departments. Is it that relative weakness which contributed to this tendency for Howard Wilson Roberts who came in with his very noble technocratic ambitions for having special advisors, or is it something which is unique to Britain and can't really be contrasted with the rest of Europe, Asia and the like? Okay, take that as one. Uh, yeah, that's um, whether the fact that they've got 
the office of head of government is small compared with other European countries, requires therefore a card of special advisors to beef it up. In okay, question one. Uh, John Stratford, author of a book on democracy. Um, it is said that a British Prime Minister, by use of the royal prerogative and patronage, has more unchecked political power than a US president. Are we moving to a position where a British Prime Minister can appoint members of his cabinet uh, who are not members of the House of Commons or House of Lords, and ultimately move to a Prime Minister being directly elected by the people? So, are we moving towards a sort of American system in which the Prime Minister can be directly elected and appoint their own cabinet, not necessarily from members of the House of Commons or the House of Lords? And then there's a third question, yeah? Caroline Jack, I work in the Cabinet Office. I was interested in the comments you had about the decline of the calibre of the civil service. <laughs> <laughs> there are exceptions. So, think about the factors you think have led to that? Factors that have led to the alleged decline <laughs> in the civil service. Which would you like to uh, go first on this? George, well, on the first question, um, I don't see why Prime Ministers should even think of having a large department. Uh, historically, until Mr Blair, uh, there was very little for Prime Ministers to do. They haven't got department, they haven't got departmental responsibilities. If a question arose on the table of the House of Commons about a particular policy issue, transport, health, education, if it was addressed to the Prime Minister, it would be diverted to the Minister responsible. Because in our country, with our constitution, with the key doctrines of uh, individual ministerial responsibility, the Ministers have the power. The Prime Minister has few powers. Legal powers are given to the other ministers. And that's why Harold uh, Macmillan was able to rest and read his trollop. He didn't have to work hard. It was the easiest job in government. Hackley didn't get involved in what the ministers were doing. It was Blair who decided to be an interventionist. Largely, I think, because he was an admirer of the United States. He loved the United States. His favourite programme was West Wing. <laughs> and he was trying to re reproduce in number 10 West Wing. They even got the actor who played the chief of staff to come and visit number 10 and to talk to the staff about having a chief of staff. <laughs> Fantasy and reality became very much entangled and Blair did expand the staff at number 10 he expanded the staff in the cabinet office he fused together the staff and there were all these units under the heading of the cabinet office and so much as Lloyd George had had to build huts in the garden of number 10 to accommodate his staff so Blair had to expand all the way around the back of Whitehall, along Halter, up into, into Admiralty Arch. And you could move all along those rooms because Blair had got in effect a Prime Ministerial Department. And Andrew and I thought, is this the beginning of 
phase three in the history of the Prime Minister's office. But then we had Gordon Brown, who began by saying he didn't want to be like Blair, and Cameron, too, didn't want to be like Blair. And they cut down the numbers of the people. They, well, they're now selling Admiralty Arch to a hotel. Uh, and they've withdrawn and pulled back the staff who were serving the Prime Minister. It, it's, a, it's a sort of zigzag development. Uh, there's a reaction to what's happening and then there's a reaction to what happens there. So um, the Prime Minister really has no or very few powers. There have been questions asked, what are the power of the Prime Minister? I think it was Lord Faulkner who gave the most recent answer. And you can see they haven't got any powers. It's the ministers who have the powers. Okay, now what about the question of the separation of the powers, the presidency question? Presidency yeah. question and the non-cabinet drawn from outside government, uh, outside parliament. Well, the strict legal requirement now, as, as, as ever, is that uh, the Queen makes the appointment, that's the legal position, of ministers and prime ministers, and in theory can appoint anyone she wants or nobody. There's no actual law saying there has to be a prime minister or ministers, and in purely legal theory, and uh, we have Professor Blackburn here who can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but uh, she can appoint anybody. Now, in practice, those, advice, those appointments were made on the advice of the Prime Minister, who is the person who can command a majority in the House of Commons. There's no actual legal reason that the Prime Minister has to be in the House of Commons or in, or in Parliament at all. The Cabinet Manual, published in 2011, which is not a legally enacted document, but actually says that, that the Prime Minister comes to the House of Commons. That's actually, it's taken us to 2011 to get it written down in an official document. So it took well, is that descriptive? Or descriptive. It's descriptive. Maybe judicial review could happen, but it's not a legal document. So, as a strict legal position, is anybody could be prime minister or minister. The, the strong convention at present is that the prime minister is in the Commons, and that mainly senior ministerial appointments come from the House of Commons. Some come from the Lords. There's not a clear ruling on that. You can have the Foreign Secretary and the Lords apparently. In terms of what, what you're asking about, could we move to a position with a, with a directly elected Prime Minister? Well, there, there was some, Graham Allen MP, Chairman of the Political and Constitutional Reform Committee in the House of Commons, would agree on that. He, his argument would be, we've actually already got the de facto presidency, only as I think you're alluding, it doesn't have any of the checks that you have in a US presidency. So you don't have the separation of powers, you don't have the... The, uh, the, the separate mandate. So he would argue what we need to do is accept that we've got a, a presidency and uh, embrace it and actually move to control it more. So I think it's what you're alluding to. But the, the other side of the coin is, of course, we're, we're returning to the 18th century in many ways in that increasingly uh, MPs are not voting the party whip. It's getting harder and harder to actually discipline MPs to vote the way they're told, which is the kind of position Walpole was in in the 18th century. So that's the other end of the coin, is it's almost behaving a bit more like Congress, and it's getting harder and harder to match. As we saw over Syria, they can't even get a, a war through Parliament any longer. Now, that, 
That may sound like a good thing, people voting against with the party whip has some merit to it, but look at the other side of it is this. We've got to be aware that the way Walpole then got his business through Parliament was by bribing people. So we've got to be aware that there's there's another side to that. But that's that's the legal one constitutional issue. How many MPs who in their heart think that the House of Commons voting on foreign and defence policy in real time would work for very long either? <laughs> anyway, Bernard, civil service. When I worked for the Prime Minister, it struck me that because he has no formal powers, that he was actually the weakest member of the government. But because he's leader of the governing party, he's actually politically the most powerful, so you'll have to balance those two. On Wilson, Wilson was attempting to correct that here. He wanted to be more interventionist, more policy initiating. At the beginning, later, he didn't want to be that at all. But that's what he wanted, and his special advisors were part of that. And, but another thing, never underestimate the influence of the French cabinet. I remember when I was going into them, lots of people were talking about France was then a successful <coughs> state on the economy, and they, they felt their governmental system was good, and the French cabinet and the use of advisors uh, was was important. I remember President Giscard d'Estaing came to visit us in London and we had a small lunch. And most of the time, when he talked to me about how we should use advisors, and most of his interest on the presidential seat, never forget the importance of the individual. If you've got a strong Prime Minister like Thatcher, it will seem presidential. If you've got a very weak one like Cameron, it won't seem <laughs> very. I mean, if he was presidential, he'd tell Clegg to F off in the living room. <laughs> <laughs> there's not nowhere else to go. <laughs> but he doesn't. He's that rare thing in British politics, but not elsewhere, what I call a political invertebrate. Uh, <laughs> and also remember that, as you said, getting we've now got the coalition, it's harder to get a clear majority more than parliament. And don't underestimate the effect of a change like that to a coalition. Since we don't have a written constitution and the convention of how we run it. Um, so with a coalition, I think a Prime Minister, even if he's got strong character, is likely to be weaker. He, he makes some compromises, doesn't he? Make Cameron does. But the coalition has an influence. And on the whole, in my view, it's only bad influence. Um, it's a different subject. But uh, giving us the best you're doing all right <coughs> if there's a hung parliament they should never forget the two better options which are either have a minority government like we did for four years out of five or have a paying rations agreement with the third party like we did in 76 to 8 the coalition is the worst alternative if you have a hung parliament on, on the civil service, as you know, I'm a great admirer, <coughs> one of the main reasons for the reform was Margaret Thatcher, with her speeches in the early 
well, in the 70s and in the early 80s, stating that Britain, you had to get the government off the people's back, you had to cut back the bureaucracy, and she was going to reduce the civil service, she said this again and again, and didn't seem to appreciate that this might have an impact on the morale of the civil service, and would also have an impact on the behaviour of the bright young civil service. I knew quite a number, and they, the bright ones were off to the city very rapidly, or into war, and the ones who were left behind, who were now government, the ones who couldn't get another job. <laughs> 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 Actually, the rising power of the special advisors, which is causing effect in all but it must make it less attractive to be a if you're surrounded by people who are surprised and cautious. Right, okay. Can now, I add on this uh, bit on, on cabinets? The, the current proposal in the civil service reform program, and President Gold's put forward, for what I think he called extended ministerial offices, if they are implemented, they are cabinets, we will then have the cabinet system if they're implemented, implemented and actually do what they say they're going to do. We'll finally got there 50 years or 60 years later. Okay, I'm going to take one more round, yeah, one more round of questions, and we will have to stop slightly after eight, but of course to right, one here, one there, one there. Andrew Riley, Churchill College. A very good question for Lord Donoghue of your concordat. I think <coughs> that meant you could go to every cabinet committee the Prime Minister chaired, but not a full cabinet. What's okay. the situation now? Thanks, good short question. And here and then at the back. Thank you, I I really enjoyed the book, and I'm glad you got a publisher. I think sometimes, perhaps, with these small imprints, um, they don't um, have a chance to publicise more than one title at a time, which is why events like this are so interesting and important, really. And my question is that, um, in the book, there's some fascinating stuff at the beginning about contemporary affairs with Coulson, and there's some fascinating anecdotes. Um, you, you mentioned some of them, Andrew, in your speech. But where the book, to me, really comes alive is when you start talking about uh, post-war Labour period uh, and with Wilson and Callaghan and then the new Labour years. And it crossed my mind that maybe it was because um, so many of the aides hated each other's guts during that period. And there's been a growing period as the number of advisers has increased and the political and the uh, policy advisers have, uh, have been set against each other, that, that actually there's, there's been far more angst and discord, and that, that actually is, is that conflict which is, has brought, brought the interest in the book that, that, which led you to write it. Okay, and there's one back here. Uh, yes, thank you very much. Um, Mark Benister, Canterbury Christchurch uh, University. Uh, just thought I'd like to commend you on, uh, uh, on three counts. Um, first on the book, because uh, there's, I think Andrew's book was the, really the only book on special advisors for a long time. So now we've got this book and there's lots of work at LS, uh, to UCL and other work that's going on looking at what special advisors actually do. Uh, secondly, I'd like to commend George because in 50 years he's not wavered from exactly the same point. I remember reading his book uh, <laughs> many years ago and he's, he's, still, he's still sticking to his line, absolutely, which is very commendable. Uh, thirdly, 
I'd like to commend the whole panel for not mentioning yes, minister, or the <laughs> That's very impressive. But my, uh, my question is really, uh, why do prime ministers seem to get it so wrong? Because they have, uh, they have this great power of patronage. It's the one thing I think we've already noted in your great historical study, that prime ministers have the ability to shape, uh, as I bring to stretch the institutions, um, that are under them, but they seem to get it wrong. The Coulson appointment is, is, is a clear example of that. Uh, Brown's office, he had all that time to plan and he got it so wrong. I wonder if you might speculate on why when they've got this great power of patronage they get it wrong. Okay, now we don't want to go on too long, so we <laughs> keep the answers reasonably short. Let's just start the controller, so in directly with you. Yeah, well, I'm specific. Yes, I didn't particularly want to attend the cabinet. I wanted to attend cabinet commissions, which ran out of favour later. Uh, but cabinet committees were where policy was really thrashed out and decided. And since I was concerned with policy, I could attend any cabinet if I wanted. I did attend the summer cabinets. If I wanted to, I asked prime minister, and they would say yes. But on the whole, I didn't want to spend my time that way. I wanted to spend it on policy. Uh, and not just on the uh, chat. And, and what about this question? I'll come back to you, George. This question about um, oh, they hate each so other. many of them yes, now, yeah. they all hate each other. Yeah. That's the really interesting stuff to throw yeah. at the front of the book. Is that true? Well, uh, they, they've always hated each other, people. I think. Yeah. Yeah. They've, uh, <laughs> That's what George was saying. Yeah. Yeah. They did, it. yeah, they, there was some rivalry in there. Certainly, I mean, the, one one thing that prime ministers seem to deliberately do, or, or some prime ministers, is play people within their teams off against each other. I think one prime minister used to use a phrase, uh, "creative tension," uh, that that you that you actually, if you get people competing with each other, that uh, something good will come out at the end of it, and you guarantee their loyalty because they'll be constantly being fighting for your ear to impress you and do what you want. And a real specialist at this, which we can go back a long way, is, is Lloyd George. And he deliberately appoints lots of different people. Some of them don't know that, that the, or everyone who's been appointed. He hands out different jobs. To, sometimes gives two or three different people the same job to do, and they don't know that there are other people working. <laughs> no one ever really knows who's doing what or what's going on. To the outsider, that look, like, might look like complete chaos, but the point of Lloyd George it's a good way of doing things because it keeps everyone on their, on their toes. And it means you're actually, if you've got three people doing it, one of them might, uh, might do it properly. Of course, you might, you might forget that you've asked them to do it uh, five minutes later and ask them to do something else. But, so they, but that, that leads to, to, to uh, a lot of rivalries, and that's something that came out in the interviews, actually. Fifty years later, when, when George was interviewing these, uh, the, the remaining members of the Lloyd George staff, when they, when they became most animated was when they were talking about how much they hated other members of the <laughs> That probably reflects the character of the Prime Minister. Yeah. I have to say in my time, I don't remember that kind of animosity <coughs> at all in my policy on it. I mean, many of them are still close friends. I this afternoon to talk about something else. Uh, and because Wilson was someone who tried to get people to like one another. Callahan was a team man. He would have got rid of anybody who was like that. In Downing Street in my time, 
rather was the sole source of advice. May I say, on the yes, Minister, on the yes, Prime Minister, it is a key text, and you should view it as <laughs> dramatic and theatrical, but basically accurate. <laughs> <laughs> I was its chief advisor, and uh, the private secretary is called Bernard.